Well, again, let's come to the Lord as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the scriptures, we thank you for them. We pray that you might direct us in our understanding of the things we read and hear, that our lives might reflect the wonder of your coming again, and that you will use us to spread the gospel wherever we might go. For Jesus' sake. Amen. This morning we're going to begin a new series in a section of the Gospel of Matthew in what's called the Olivet Discourse, the fifth and final discourse that Matthew records from the lips of Jesus with teaching that has reference to events that would transpire shortly after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension and to events that still await fulfilment, including the end of the age. And this passage before us today and for the next few weeks to come, both from Matthew 24 and 25, is prophetic. That is, it speaks of end times, or to use the technical term, it speaks of eschatology, which is a word that means the study of the end times or the end. Now when you mention the word eschatology and this subject, there are all kinds of reactions stirred up within God's people. Some go way overboard on the on the topic. Others consider it far too much of a hot potato to even touch it, let alone preach on it. A balanced view, however, would remind us that on the one hand, a significant portion of the New Testament is taken up with teaching on the end times. Jesus and Paul and many of the other apostles addressed themselves to the very important issues connected with the fulfilment of prophecy and the end times, and much of it is crystal clear. That is to say, while there is a room for a variety of views on some matters, the main facts are clear. Jesus will return, and that will be the end. But also here, not to study these passages, would not only do great damage to our knowledge of the future, but also how we live. For the New Testament teaching about the end times is always directly tied to the daily living of the Christian life. Our understanding of what the New Testament teaches about the end times is very important in relation to the motivation for the living out of the Christian life. And so today we're going to take up consideration of Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 24 verses 1 to 14 where he sets forth his practical teaching about the end times. Now, realistic expectations are essential to the success of any venture. If you don't know what you're getting into when you start something, you can become liable to discouragement when you're in the middle of difficulties and obstacles. And the same is true for the road ahead of us as disciples of Jesus. If you become a Christian thinking that you're never again going to have to struggle against sin or the world will pat you on the back and wish you well, you're going to be sorely disappointed, perhaps even despondent and despairing when reality hits. So in this passage, Jesus is explaining to the disciples and to us what we are to expect in and from this world between his first and second comings. Three things to note this morning. First of all, from verses 1 to 3, we'll note in relation to the end of all things how mistaken the disciples were in their thinking. 
The extent of their confusion is shown in the very questions they asked. See, Jesus had just made a stunning series of assertions in Matthew chapter 23. For example, in verse 38, Jesus has just said in his final public sermon that God is going to leave the temple of Jerusalem desolate. Now here they were, these disciples walking among the temple grounds and its surroundings. It's good to know then that about 20 years before Jesus spoke these words, Herod had started a tremendous building project, an expansion project, a rebuilding project in the temple, a project that would go on all the way to AD 66. And this temple would become one of the greatest structures in all ancient history. Edersheim says that it was the greatest sacred structure in its situation and its architecture in either ancient times or modern. The rabbis who lived after the destruction, who did not particularly like Herod, even those rabbis said that if you have not seen the temple of Herod, you have not seen a beautiful building. It was one of the most fabled structures in all of the ancient world. And here the disciples were, walking around and admiring it, not finished, of course. Of course, it's not only for them a gorgeous structure, it represents to them the very heart and soul of their religion and the very physical sign of God's presence with his people. They knew that Psalm 122 said about it, and now here was Jesus saying the temple, which was a sign of God's presence on earth, was going to be destroyed to the point of a stone no longer standing upon another. Jesus spoke of complete and utter destruction. And this must have seemed strange and inconceivable to the disciples. How can this be? How can it be that God would visit his final destruction upon Jerusalem? How can it be that God would leave the temple desolate? Basically, They put their minds together and they did some reflection. The other Gospels tell us that they sent a spokesman from the inner circle of disciples to ask Jesus this question. And here's what they came up with. Basically, they decided, okay, if Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, then that must mean that God's final judgment of the world is coming. For surely, Jerusalem will stand the very last day. And if God's final judgment of the world is coming... That must mean that Christ is going to immediately set up his kingdom and we will reign with him. And being of that persuasion, they postulated that there would be certain signs to foretell when this was going to happen in the next few years. The coming of his kingdom, the judgment of the world, they're reigning with him. And so they asked Jesus two distinct but related questions and it's important to keep that in mind. They asked, one, when is this going to happen? And two, what are going to be the signs of the end of the age? It isn't surprising that the disciples would link the destruction of the temple with the return of Jesus. In their minds, these two events were linked, and so they spoke as they thought. But in his answer, which we'll come to in a moment, Jesus was concerned to not only correct their faulty understanding, but also to set forth a correct understanding about what was ahead. So second, we note from verses 4 to 12, in relation to the end of all things, 
we note how certain Jesus was about a delay in his coming. In Jesus' response to the disciples' fuzzy thinking, we find that he not only told them something that would be important for them in the next few years, hundreds of years beyond them, he also gave them strong pastoral counsel, which was so relevant to their daily living at the time and is immediately relevant to our daily living of the Christian life. Even now, in every generation, in every nation, between his two advents. Now I'd like you to see in these verses this grand theme. That the Christian, the believer, must prepare for opposition, not triumph, until he comes again. Let's look at the passage in verses 4 through to 12. Jesus correct their mistaken notions. While they may have been thinking up here, this is it. There's victory and glory to come for us. Jesus made every effort to pop that thought bubble and bring them back to reality. Note several things. For starters, the signs that are listed here do not tell us that the end is near. All these things occurred in the lifetime of the disciples to whom Jesus was speaking. And in spite of that clear warning over and over, we have people who still appeal to these verses as being signs of the nearness of his coming. In fact, we have people who go so far as telling us the timing of that coming. And this passage is a standing warning against that kind of thing. Years ago, you might have heard of a book that was called 88 Reasons That Christ Is Returning in 1988. Don't worry if you didn't. This passage is a standing warning against that kind of thing. Notice also, especially in verses 6 and 7 and 14, that Jesus indicated that there would be a substantial period before the end. He stressed in verse 6, the end is not yet. And that's so important to see that he expected a substantial period of time to happen. He says in verse 8, this is only the beginning. In verse 7, remember it takes time for nation to rise against nation. And verse 14, we might think it takes time for the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. Jesus clearly expected this substantial period of time to elapse before the end. Then notice in verse 6 that Jesus made it clear that the destruction of Jerusalem would not mark the end of the age. After he said, the end is not yet, the disciples responded with, so when is this going to happen and what are the signs and what about your coming and what about the end of the age? These are distinct issues. And notice in verse 9 that Jesus made it clear that the full glory of the kingdom was not going to come when the temple was destroyed. Indeed, there would be only persecution and tribulation. So foretelling and forthtelling the great need for them to endure, and then in doing so, telling them why they will need to endure. And so third, from verses 13 to 14 in relation to the end of all things, note how urgent Jesus was about the challenge for the believing. We can note from this passage six things that he taught about the experience of the church in between his first and second comings. Let's see them. First, in verses 4 and 5, he taught the church is going to be afflicted by the appearing of false messiahs. There are going to be those who claim to be the coming Christ. And we have had many, and expect that in every generation there will be some who claim similar. 
And by the way, Jesus doesn't say in this passage, but he's going to say it several times in the passages to come, that if you have any doubt in your mind about the claim of someone that they are the Messiah, you won't need to, because his coming will be such that you can't miss it. So if you think, I wonder if this is the Messiah, the answer is no, because no one can possibly miss the coming of the Lord Jesus. Then in verses 6 and 7, he taught that such things as war and conflict between nations and famines and earthquakes were not signs of the end, but that they would impact believers all over. Then in verse 9, he taught that the church will face hatred, persecution and death. So much for the triumphant victory expectations in the disciples, when instead they should have been preparing for just the opposite. Then in verse 10, Jesus taught that the church would be afflicted by troubles from within, that is, from within the body of believers, would be those who betray other believers. From within the body of believers would come those who commit apostasy and fall away. From this we glean that the future of the church was never going to be rosy or perfect, but a struggle and a battle. Then, verse 11, where Jesus taught that the church would be afflicted by false prophets. These would come also from within the church, leading many astray, causing believers to have to be, what we will see in the next point, on guard and prepared. And then in verse 12, he taught that the church would witness the decay of standards all over the world. Being our great prophet as well as our saviour, he foretold that the world would become a place characterised by lawlessness and lovelessness, evil and unrighteousness. We heard something of that in 2 Timothy 3 this morning. Put those pieces together like a jigsaw puzzle and what's the picture it's making? The picture is not one of perfection or triumph, but struggle, temptation, trial, martyrdom and distress. Did you know that this is what you signed up for when you came to Christ? But it's there, isn't it? Spoken by the one who declared the word of the Lord and who does not lie. Now, how do we apply this? What do we glean from it? Well, for a start, let's remember that history proved the word of Jesus to be the truth. When the Romans came and invaded and sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, they left nothing untouched. The historian of the day, Josephus, claimed that 1.1 million people were killed during the siege, many of whom were Jews attending the Passover celebration at this temple and armed rebels as well as the frail citizens were put to death. All of Jerusalem's remaining citizens became Roman prisoners. Jesus will later speak of these days as days of great distress, and so he not only taught here what the disciples were to expect and when to expect it, but also how to prepare for what was coming upon them. And he gave them at least four pieces of practical instruction, both warning and encouragement, and you'll note them in verse 4, in verse 6, verse 13 and verse 14. Not do's and don'ts, but this time don'ts and do's. Two of each. First of all, he says, don't be deceived, in verse 4. Don't be misled. Don't preoccupy yourself with signs. Be on your guard. There's going to be many false prophets and false messiahs, not only in his time, but in ours. And so in order not to be misled, We must know the truth. This commits us to be regular students of the word of God so that we might not be misled 
by false teaching or prophecy or Messiah. It's only been 15 years since Barack Obama first came on the scene. And while it's America, I know, I find it interesting that when he did arrive, websites popped up all over the place with statements like this. Quote, Is Barack Obama, US Senator from Illinois, best-selling author, Harvard Law Review editor, men's Vogue cover model, and exploratory presidential candidate, is he the second coming of our Saviour and our Redeemer, Prince of Peace and King of Kings, Jesus Christ? His press coverage suggests we can't dismiss this possibility out of hand. How wrong can you be? Then in verse 6 he says, don't be disturbed. He tells all his disciples all this, not that they might be frightened or discouraged or despairing or despondent. When you see these tremendously unsettling events occur, we're not to think, oh no, God didn't know this was happening. Jesus is saying, no, no, don't be frightened. Don't be disturbed. Don't be discouraged by this. This is coming. God has planned it and God will bring you through it. Then he says in verse 13, do endure by saying all who endure will be saved. Jesus was not putting a condition on our salvation at that point, but he was saying in effect, I know what I am calling you to is difficult, but there is a hope at the end of your travail. There is a crown of glory set before you in your struggle. So everyone who endures will receive that crown of glory. They'll receive the full blessings of God's salvation. Those who remain loyal to Christ will enter into glory. This is the great and general emphasis of this whole section of Jesus' teaching. He is exhorting his disciples to persevere and to endure the things that they are going to face because he who stands firm to the end shall be saved. And then finally he says, do get busy. For the kingdom is going to be proclaimed to the nations. This is an encouragement regarding the scope of the kingdom. The Jewish prophets spoke of some of the signs mentioned in verses 4 through to 12 in relation to the end of the age in their view, but their understanding of the coming of the Gentiles into the kingdom was limited and not so much in view. But here it is plainly. The good news of the gospel will reach the Gentiles. And the book of Acts tells us that it did. But by the time you reach the end of Acts 28, there's more Gentiles to be reached. And the same situation remains. Here are the facts. There are 10,333 people groups across the world, comprising nearly 8 billion people. 42% of those, that is, 4,524 people groups consisting comprising just over 3 billion people, still have not heard the gospel. If it's taken 2,000 years to reach the 58%, the end is not yet in sight. But what is in sight is that the gospel of God that has been brought into our hearts and lives, that message of grace which is received by faith, that gospel is going to be preached to the nations, and in that we ought to take encouragement. And if we want to speed it along, then we must be part of that movement. Remember that Jesus, before ascending into heaven, will say to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And so it's with these important practical commands that we find here 
embedded in the midst of these matters Jesus spoke of in relation to the end, that these truths provide us with encouragement to persevere, for his day is in view. He doesn't give us here the when, but he does give us the reminder to be ready for it, to watch out for it, to expect much trial before it, and never ever give up on him or his coming, for he never gave up on you, despite the awful horror of the cross and the fullness of the wrath of God that would come upon him. He did not shrink back, and so must you and so must I, even if it be to death. For as the writer of the Hebrews says of his readers, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Will you be among that group? Will you pray that we all might be ready to do just that? And will you take heed to the things that Jesus said, things that happened, and things that are to come? Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for Jesus, our great prophet, who tells us the things that are to come. We thank you that his word was fulfilled and that his word will be fulfilled. What he has decreed will surely come to pass. As we have opened up this part of the scriptures and will continue through it in the next few weeks, we pray for your help. We pray, certainly, that the gospel message will be sped on throughout the whole world, that those people groups who are yet to hear might hear of your wondrous deeds and that the end might come when the whole world has heard of the wonder of your grace towards us in Christ. Please help us to be about the gospel. We have a story to tell. Please help us to tell it and prepare us for the days that are coming that will be tough to be your children. We ask this in his name. Amen.